0: Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common sense approach to some of the most important discussion
1: points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee, where I teach all things business and commercial law, uh, and my research has focused on corporate governance as well as corporate personhood. The topic of today's episode is No More Old Boys Club, and we'll be discussing an article by the same name, co-authored by my guest today, and the ongoing efforts to diversify corporate boards. When it comes to board diversity and C-suite diversity in general, Many people are surprised that the management at companies does not reflect the world in their own workplace. Many have made efforts to figure out why and and how to effectuate change, and my guest today will help to explain the lay of the land and make some suggestions for achieving more representative leadership. So I've assembled some amazing guests today who also happen to be some of my good friends, so I will let them each introduce themselves. First, Anat. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan. And thank you
1: for the audience for being here with us today. Uh, My name is Anatolon Beck. I'm an assistant professor of law at Case Western Reserve University. And uh, I'm very passionate about, about this topic. I write about unicorns, corporate law, finance. And it's really an honor to be with you today. Thank you. Darren?
2: Thank you so much for including us. And we're really excited to talk about this piece I'm Darren Rosenblum. I'm a professor of law at McGill University in the Faculty of Law, where I teach business associations and corporate governance. And my research has been on gender diversity in corporate governance and leadership. Um, and I've looked at that question from a variety of different ways, including empirical work and theoretical work. Um, and, and lately, we've been doing some work thinking about uh, deeper levels of corporate governance, uh, and how they can reflect norms of diversity. And that's really the the question that prompted us to investigate this issue that's the, at the heart of this paper.
0: Awesome. I'm so, so excited to have you both. Um, and so, Darren, I'd like to kick the, the discussion off with you and, and jump into it. You know, you've spent, spent quite a bit of your career focused on diversity and representation. And, you know, why is this such a difficult thing? Why is it so difficult to change corporate leadership?
2: Well, I, I think it's worth thinking about the challenge in a broader sense first uh, and connecting it to broader political debates, which I think are part of why it's so challenging within the corporate context. Lonnie Guineer was one of my professors and one of my mentors at Penn Law, and I studied with her many of the issues that really have played out in my work over the past couple of decades. One of the things that she focused on is the importance of minority representation and how corporate law already has a solution for this with cumulative voting, which is the most dominant uh, form of voting in cor- for corporate shareholders. Um, and she took that as a model for thinking about minority inclusion in broader political spheres. But the other work that she really examined is sort of the challenge of power sharing and how it is difficult to get people with power to, to share power. And I think that's part of why this is so challenging, is that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about inclusion and the essential nature of inclusion, but and, and I think there's broad consensus on the need for inclusion and diversity, and yet the needle doesn't budge very much, right? It's been a long time, I think, for you certainly and for us, that we've seen corporate leaders um, speak the right things about diversity. Professor Cheryl Wade called this a while ago, diversity doublespeak. And I think that's a great phrase for what's happening. Um, And at the same time, we know that the actions are really falling behind. That board representation for women has lagged and certainly for people of color, it's lagged substantially. Um, And now lately people have started thinking about LGBT representation in leadership but it's not just about the board, it's also about executive leadership as well. Um, And while our topic in this paper is really about the board particularly, I think the the, uh, I'm mentioning that because I think it's an important part of the answer to your question, which is why is this challenging? It's because the people who are running things don't wanna give up their power. And the people who are running things are primarily the executives who play such a dominant role in corporate governance. And who are uh, yeah, la- yeah. who are, you know, well over 90% white and male and and all of them are cisgendered.
0: Yes. And and I love the reframing of it you know that Lonnie Guineer and others have done of thinking about power sharing. Because it makes it so easy to understand how you can diversify the bottom but not the top. Um, You know how we can have 50% of women in law school, but not have 50% of women law firm partners, or more than 50% of women in law school I, I know I went I started law school in 2001. And I think that was probably the first year when it was like more women are in law school than men. And I look at the law firm partner announcements and I don't see it or I look at and the same with business schools and the same with med schools when I look at like who's in charge we've had more women in college and more women in grad school for two decades now, and I don't see the change. Um, and so reframing it as power sharing and, and recognizing that we've got to focus more on getting people to the top and, sh- and dividing the power and not just integrating the bottom um, is, is a nice way of making us understand what the problem is and what we need to do.
2: Thank you, yeah.
0: All right, now not you know, in your article with Darren, um, you know, uh, y'all accept that the benefit of gender diversity is apparent. And I totally agree with you, right? Like we, we know the benefits of diversity. We see it at the bottom, right? We see what happens when you change the bottom. Um, we know that you maximize value in a corporation. And allegedly, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be maximizing shareholder wealth. But, you know, how does diversity help to do that? How does diversity maximize that wealth?
1: That's a great question. And I, and I just want to say one thing and why I'm so passionate about this is because, you know, now I teach corporate law. We don't have that many, um, you know, it's hard to see what you practice. We don't have that many women as corporate law professors. And not only that, when I used to practice corporate law, especially m and I would find myself as the only woman in the boardroom. And I'm not even a director, but I represent one of the parties, you know, I represent the company or one of the investors. And um, so I think we have to see s- some difference here. And I think even today, right, even today, we're in 22. Um, we still don't see corporate more, um, diversity. And it's very contested. And, you know, when we started thinking about this two years ago, people thought it was crazy. I presented the idea to some uh, people in a very uh, well-known co- corporate governance conference. And even women in the room are like, oh, we disagree with you. I'm like, but nothing has changed. We haven't moved the needle. You know, so so it, it's very contested. You know, why do we even need, why do we need to achieve social equality? And that's why we, we actually think it's important to focus on the equality, on having, re, um, you know, equal representation of women in boardrooms and also diversity. Why is it so hard? And and I think that what we're doing here, we're thinking about fiduciary duties, Right. And and I think it's a novel place. This is what we're doing that's so different here. Why? Because we're looking at fiduciary duties of institutional investors. Think about the Black Rocks. Think about the big three. Think about the large players in the market that manage our money, right? We think they should manage it for us, for the fiduciary, for the beneficiaries, for the better, for our interests, right? They should do that for the long term. And I think we will benefit. For the long term if we have more representation and there's so many studies there's so many studies first equality in itself we believe is great okay but there's so many studies that show that there's a group thing and companies that don't have diversified survived boards there uh they can take more risks and and it's actually they don't perform as well so there's so many studies that have already been done and looking at closer at economic theories and showing that there is a benefit to diversification. And not only is there benefit, think about the younger generations. Today, they really care about purpose, right? They're not going to stand behind companies that don't deliver on that purpose. They want to see a change. They don't just want to see fake statements by large corporations. We see all these statements. And then, you know, Darren, Michal and I, we actually take a look at the actions and we're like, okay, great statement. Where are your actions? Show us. Show us that you diversify your boards. Show us that you diversify the C-suite. Show us what you're doing for your employees with a pandemic. Think about how the pandemic really changed our lives and, you know, disrupted our lives and, and what's happening. And we're facing all this. All, I think all these challenges are, you know, surfing, uh, you know, and bubbling up and, around you know why is it so disputed in the united states you know if we look outside right outside the united states we've been doing that and you look at this there's a huge project it's called the fiduciary duty in the 21st century and you look at other countries and they've already adopted these this is part of their economic analysis when they make investment decisions and here we're still debating whether it's good or bad we're not even there yet okay so we have so much to do and what we're doing we're trying to you know, raise these discussions, open it up. And, and what we're basically saying, take diversity into account when you're making investment decisions. Yes, for investment decisions. I think it's important. I think you need to promote equality um, and you need to consider that, especially when you say you take stakeholder interests into account, right? How can you take stakeholder interests into account without taking these issues into account? And there are so many studies already that show that, that we need to do this. And, and uh, you know, so I think that if we look at social science, it, it demonstrates how when you have a diverse group, they make better decisions than homogeneous groups. Okay. And so if that's the case, why is it that we still have men dominating the boardrooms?
0: <laughs> okay. So how is that possible? And that's what we're trying to change and And, And what I love about what you said is, um, I think we get painted with this brush when you promote when you say you want to promote diversity and equality, um, that we're kind of only promoting diversity and equality because we're tree hugging liberals who, you know, want to shoot Benetton ads in boardrooms. Um, and everyone who's too young to know what a Benetton ad is, I'm sorry. But you know, the, the imagery of, you know, the, the perfect diverse room with multicolored people and multilingual people. And it doesn't have, it's not grounded in anything. And the truth is, it is grounded in something. We have decades of empirical evidence that, that tell you that groupthink and you know having unilateral governance, you know, homonorative unilateral governance is a bad thing. Like those are the least profitable things. Yet it doesn't make its way into the agenda. Like we know it's better, you know, it's it's like eating your vegetables, right? We know it's better for us, but we still won't eat our vegetables and, and diversify the boardroom. Um, and so, you know, even though we won't eat our vegetables, you know, as corporations, I, you know, it always shocks me about this diversity issue is, you know, with other things like, let's say ending sexual harassment or, um, you know, being kinder and giving people time off and giving health care benefits. You know, they can we can put together a spreadsheet and show how giving people more time off costs more money. Um, we can pick some other things and say, this affirmatively actually costs corporations money if we pay people more wages. But when it comes to diversity, we can put a spreadsheet together. We can put an empirical study together and say, this makes us more money. So how, why are we still not doing it, right? Like if it actually makes more money, if it actually maximizes wealth, and that's what motivates the American corporation, you know, why is it still so hard? Darren, what do you think?
2: Well, I think it's, you know, it's, you're you're essentially asking a deeper version of the previous question, right? Which is, where is the resistance? And And I do want to highlight part of what I think the resistance is which goes back to Gary Becker's work on the economics of discrimination from the early 70s, in which he basically said, and this is the Chicago Law and Economics take on discrimination, which is that if discrimination um, is uh, costing companies, then eventually it will disappear. That companies will do what is most efficient for them, Discrimination is inefficient because it excludes people who are talented, and so eventually discrimination will diminish. Now, he made this argument in the early 70s, and while numbers have gotten better since then, it's not radically better. It's nowhere near uh, proportionate to the population of women and people of color, not by a long shot. And as you noted... It's been a very long time that, at least for those groups, they've been quite well represented in higher ed and in lower echelons of the corporate world. So um, so to me, it's pretty clear that there still is quite a bit of discrimination, and some of that discrimination could be the, the sort of widespread uh, perception now, which is that it's unconscious bias. And I think that is a, a popular view because, in part, I think it's—I uh, think it's somewhat accurate to say that there are many people who don't voice discriminatory opinions, right? So, in—in—you know—occasionally, for example, when I went to law school, I would hear straight guys, you know, in the bathroom because guys talk say somewhat sexist things but it wasn't anywhere near as bad as what you hear about in these um really horrendous me too cases um so is there deliberate intentional discrimination i'm sure there is i'm sure there's also a lot of unconscious bias out there but i also think a lot of it just comes down to maintaining privilege and power and that and so this is something afra Afsharipur, and i've explored in a recent piece as well um, power and pay in the c-suite in which we explore whether there's a correlation between the domination of men in the c-suite and astronomical executive salaries and and we sort of explore why that might be the case and to me it seems like an obvious example of capture, right? That basically the people who are running things don't want to give up their power. That's not necessarily a story of discrimination, Carlos. Mm -hmm. It's the story of a group that's very entrenched and doesn't want to give up its control. Now, it happens that that group is cisgendered white men, largely older white men, right? But I don't know how much it is You know, it's certainly clear that there's discrimination going on in terms of some of the exclusions that happen. But, um, But we have these sort of three explanatory pieces, the capture argument, the deliberate discrimination argument, and the unconscious bias argument. And how we weigh those things out, I think there's still some research to do. But it's clear that each one is playing a part in terms of explaining what's going on. The no, other thing I, I, yeah. you raised is sort of the, the essentially, and, and I think Anat spoke to this quite nicely, is what the business case for inclusion is. And it is a really robust case, um, which underscores how this capture is actually quite harmful to the firm, right? But I also think it's worthwhile to note that that's not the whole story, that inclusion is valuable for its own sake, and not just because it increases the profitability of the firm. And here I want to push back on, and Anat and I were talking about this earlier and had emailed with you about it, about Larry Thinks' latest missive about how inclusion is really good for the bottom line of the firm. And, and we certainly agree with him, but one of the things that Michal and Anat and I try to underscore in this piece is that inclusion has a value of its own, regardless of the business case for diversity. And that that is why the fiduciary duty piece is so essential. It's not just about making money because the firms have an imperative to make money, but we're saying they also have a duty to diversify because it's part of good governance. Absolutely. You
0: know, I'd, I'd like to touch on the implicit bias piece and and I'm not, um, you know, let me know if you had this similar experience and you can build on it. Um, you know, one thing I think about, when I I think about the implicit bias and and how we have so many women at the bottom and not at the top is mommy tracking. Um, And I, I remember being at a, when I was at big law, um, no one ever said this to us, but you know, people at the law firm, you know, girls at the law firm would say, I got engaged. I'm not going to wear my ring to work because if I wear my ring to work, they think, they think I'm getting married and I'm going to have a kid and I'm not going to get the good cases or I'm not going to get the good deal. Or, you know, I have friends who would delay announcing their pregnancy past annual review and kind of be like people in the 80s sitcoms, like blocking their belly and like not trying to run into the partners because they were so afraid that if a partner saw their pregnant belly, they would stop getting work. No one ever said it to us out loud. No one ever said your work stops if you get pregnant or if you get married and we think you're going to get pregnant. But in the back of our mind, we all thought it was a thing. Uh, and I would love to hear if, one, you know, you, you experience that, too, if that's, like, universal. And, like, you know, what role does this perception that, you know, women are either on the partnership track, on the CC suite track, which means they're leaning all the way in. They're not having kids. They're not having life. Or we're mommy tracking these folks and they're going to stop somewhere like of counsel or, you know, do the touchy feely law that isn't MA. and um, You know, how, how is that kind of impacting this discussion?
1: Wow. So I think it's a big deal because I have to say that I experienced it myself. So when I started practicing, I was single. Right. And I could stay at the office every day till midnight. And, you know, you're saying that you weren't asked. I was asked, are you going to get married anytime soon? And I said, oh, not yet, you know. Um, and and I did get married during my first year, but that's, you know, besides the point. Um, because, again, I was doing MA. I was one of the few women who did it. But although there were a few, I have to say there were a few women who were partners. They were not married, though, and they didn't have any kids. And I felt like that was the expectations. And when my friends went through this, I have very few um, women friends who are partners. I, I have to tell you, or, or very few friends who carry on, you know, the responsibility of raising kids who become partners. And, and many quit, they quit, whether it's investment banking or law firms. I mean, they, it, it's, it's a big deal. Um, and more than that, I think We see that. I'm not surprised we don't see that on the boardroom when we don't see it in law firms. I remember when I joined, there was one woman that was a partner in a huge firm and that was celebrated. And you know how they celebrated once a week? She could go home at five. You know, that was like a huge achievement, you know, Um, and today, by the way. I have friends who are partners, and they're telling me something else. At least in an M and A, in a M&A, which that's what I do, they say that they can't even keep their associates. Their associates are running away. Doesn't matter, you know. Uh, they they just they can't keep them because of the pandemic, because of everything that's going on. So I think we also need to ask ourselves this question: if we're looking at this profession, what is it that we expect people to do? And maybe some things that work for our generation might not work for you know for, for future generations. What kind of message is it that we want to give people? And um, in my first law firm, nine, in the second law firm, partners would dine by themselves. They had their own dining. They had their own bathrooms. You weren't even allowed to use the same bathroom. So that's like a, a message that was sent. You know, there was one woman that could use their bathrooms. Okay. So yeah, I mean, corporate law is, it's, uh, things have changed. I think things changed. I don't think it's that way today. That was, you know. Maybe telling a little bit my age quite a few years ago. But, (laughs) you know, uh, we still have uh, a ways to go. And But that's why I think corporate governance is important. Governance, also in a law firm or in a big firm, it's important. Why? Because boards play a central role, right? They are going to dictate the strategy. Plus, how can I look up to something when I don't see representation? How can I break the glass ceiling when I don't see people
0: then go through what I go through, right? And the main um, reason I ask the, re, the reason I ask you that, Anat, and kind of shift it to there, um, you know, kind of transitions to my next topic, because, you know, how do you get to be qualified to be on a board? You know, how do you get to be qualified to be a corporate executive? You can't quit in five years. Um, you can't quit in two years. You know, you have to have the experience. Um, and And, you know, when I hear from, When I talk to people in corporations, you know, and I say, why don't you have any women on the board? Um, They'll say no one's qualified or we can't find anyone who's qualified. Um, No one's been in the game long enough. Or, you know, we don't, there's, I don't see any women at the next level. Like they say they don't see women around, but when you create this hostile environment and you either mommy track people or, you know, you're a lifer who's going to suffer with us people, um, then that means we, you know, there's a gap you know, I have the same thing where I don't, you know, I have some friends who are partners, but not very many. I have lots of friends who left and gone to the DOJ and who've left and, and gone to do other things. And, you know, if our friends aren't staying in MA, and um, then that's even fewer women who are going to be qualified to be on boards in 10 years, right? Um, if they're not going in-house and climbing the ladder in-house, at least, then, you know, you don't have this pipeline Um, And I do think the younger generation is better than us. Um, They're not tolerating the lack of work-life balance. Um, And I think it helps that men are also not tolerating the lack of work-life balance more. Um, And gender nonconforming people are, and they're coming out sooner, and they're like living their truth and not conforming to corporate or law firm or iBank culture of, of hiding who they are. And I think that helps everyone when everyone refuses to follow, you know, in the system, um, but we we got a lot of work to do because, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm 42. I'll say my actual age. I, I, I Like when I look around, I don't know who's left and still doing it, who's my age. Um, and so is that another 10 years of lack of diversity simply because of a population issue? Right? Yeah. Is that what that means?
1: Um, well, I, I I do. I have to say I kind of disagree with that a little bit. And I tell you why. Because there are qualified people and they still don't make it. They still don't get picked in the selection processes. That's what we're advocating for, right? We want disclosure. We want big companies to tell us, what is it you're doing? Who are you hiring? Who are you picking? Who's in your selection committee? What are your, What's your criteria, right? Because I know plenty. Let me give you an example. I went to a conference. I won't say the name of the school, in a very well-known law school. And I was invited to this panel on corporate law. And in the school next door, the business school, one of the professors, by the way, from the law school was hosting a conference on business law. But in the business school, I go there. I don't see any women on the panel. And I raise my hands and I'm like, why don't you have any women on the panel? You have women who are students, right? In the audience. What kind of message are you portraying? And he said to me, I couldn't get anybody to come and sit on the panel. I said, I'm here. I was invited to go give a talk five minutes for your building. You didn't even check. You didn't email me. I would have come. And they tell me, oh, we invite people all the time. They don't come. That's not, you know, it's not enough. What we're saying, no more old boys club, is because it's about a club. You need to belong to the club. You play, you know, in the same country club. You go to schools together. You're in the same network. You'll find a lot of interlocking directorates between You know someone. You're part of a certain group. We want to break that. We think there are qualified people, but they don't even get the chance many times. Right. And I think it's not going to happen unless we do some things about it, unless we have transparency and we need to see what's going on. What's we need to be able to select vet, monitor executives, directors, organizational planning. What's going on? Tell us what's going on. Don't just give me some statements, you know, I'm going to, you know, support diversity and equality and do all these things for the long run and invest and I'm a fiduciary and I'm doing everything for the benefit. Show me the money. Show me that you're really doing these things, right? I mean, don't just give me statements.
0: And, so, and Darren, you know, I would I would love to, like, I agree with you, not. And, and and part of, of what, you know, I like the article and the approach, you know, is this definition of qualified, right? And, and so I would love, Darren, for you to kind of, compare, you know, what should actually make someone qualified to serve on a board versus what seems to get people on boards. Just kind of explaining for lay people what this disconnect is, right? Like, is everyone on a corporate board, a Harvard and Yale graduate with an MBA and a JD and a PhD and a super, super expert and everything who's written economic papers? Or is it like a bunch of people's friends? Like, who makes up boards? And, and like, what are the true qualifications versus what maybe should be the qualifications?
2: Well, it's a great question. And, um, and I just want to add a quick comment to your last question before I get to the board's, uh, piece of it, which is that, you know, I, uh, you know, when I practiced, uh, in big law, I was, uh, on the personnel committee. And so I saw from that perspective, some of the, you know, um, hushed discussions of mommy track stuff. And so men who were reticent to take uh, parental leave because they thought that they would be stigmatized, which was very commonplace. And certainly women who had some of the concerns that both you and Anat uh, shared, um, and, and also sort of some of the knock-on effects of that, which are incredibly... Um, damaging to women's careers, um, like the presumption that a woman's on the mommy track, which leads the woman to work harder and to perform more face time than some of her, their male colleagues. And I saw this over and over and over again. And there's some interesting work uh, coming out in uh, June Carbone and Naomi Kahn and Nancy Levitt have a book they're working on called Shafted, which explores this sort of triple bind, how women aren't just held to this double bind standard where they have to be feminine enough to not be nonconforming, but also play the rules that the boys play, but also that they're held to a higher ethical standard um, in their performance. And I think that is very much true. And so your example, for example, you know, was that a lot of women have to hide or cover the fact that they might be getting married or pregnant or whatever. And I think that is very much true, that women will withdraw from work rather than um, not do it properly, right? So, so I've had many conversations with women who were about to step down from being partner or counsel, because they just couldn't cut it uh, as parents and lawyers. And I always told them, you know something? The men push for this. You push for it. You tell them, I want to stay, but I'm cutting back my hours. And that's how it's going, because that's what a man would do. And it was so foreign for them, because they were so used to playing by the rules. And that's part of what's going on, I think, is that women play by the rules so frequently. And I think this is also true for a lot of people of color, which is something explored in uh, Devin Grabato and Mitu Gulati's book, Acting White, that they play by the rules in order to get ahead because they're held to a higher standard, you know? And so I, you know, that takes me back, it's sort of a back way into your question, which is <laughs> who gets on boards? It's not always the people playing by the rules, Exactly. It's not those yeah. people. It's the insiders. It's the people who are buddy-buddy. It's the people who know other people. It's the people who take risks that, that they can make fly and, um, and have people covering for them in case they fall on their face. Um, whereas women and people of color don't always have that protection within their organizations. Um, and, um, and ultimately at the end of the day, the principal qualifier for a board membership is having past executive experience. And because the C-suite is so exclusionary, that on its own is the number one explaining factor, I think, for why there's so little diversity in the boardroom. Because they want people, and I think it's a legitimate desire, who have executive experience. But this is where we go back to something that Michal and Anat and I discussed, which is that executive experience is found not just in the C-suite, but among people who run divisions of different firms, right. who are carrying a lot of p responsibility, but they're not at the very top of their organizations. And so like Anant's example of the conference, it's not like you you just have to accept that you've asked the same people and they keep saying no. You have to look at who are the other people who are diverse people who have skills that are like these, who have executive skills. And there are plenty of immensely qualified people with P&L responsibility just below the C-suite who are diverse and who would be phenomenal board members in any large corporation and who would add to the governance. So I think that's where you see the disconnect. The current system is still very insidery. It's better than it was because there's an increasing use of headhunters and processes to be more deliberate through the nominating committee as firms choose new board members but it's still there's a long way to go
0: yeah and you know i you know i love the idea of you know it's more like we're focused on what the title someone has is rather than what that title means and what the skill set is behind that title Um, and so if you don't stay because you get mommy tracked um, and so you have all the skills but you never get the title you know if you get off if you you know and i think about friends who you know, take five years off or 10 years off, you know, by the time they get the title that would get them on a board, they don't want to serve on a board. They're approaching retirement. So like just taking that five-year detour and needing to have the title means you don't fly, you don't ever get on anyone's radar, even though you have the exact same skills and you throw in not going to the same country club and not having gone to the same school and not being in the same circle otherwise. And then, you know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't, Get to be a part of it, right? You don't get it. So, you know, the one thing I that we haven't done is um, we have not kind of defined things for people. You know, explain to people what all the terms that we say mean. And so, we've thrown around words like institutional investors and fiduciary duties. Um, so, one, do you like to just explain for folks what is an institutional investor? What is that?
1: Sure. So, you know, it's funny because there isn't really an exact definition of institutional investors. It could be different players, but what it means is that you have large market players and what they do is, let me give you some examples, pension funds, mutual funds, money managers, insurance companies, investment banks, you have commercial trust, endowment funds and others. And what they do is they manage other people's money. Okay. There are beneficiaries. There are fiduciaries. What they do is they take your money, for example, and they manage it for you. And let me just give you an example. Just if we take a look at the New York stock exchange, right? 85% of the trades, okay? 85% of the volume of the trades, I think on the New York stock exchange, uh, is being managed by institutional investors. They account for that. Okay. And what they do Is they move large blocks of shares. So they have tremendous influence on, on the stock markets movements. And today, and in the past few years, their dominance have gone up and up and up. If about 50 years ago, they managed about 30%. Now they manage over 80%. That's over $3 trillion in assets that they're managing. That's why we call them universal owners. They have huge influence on corporate governance. Okay. So they are huge market players.
0: And then, you know, Darren, what are fiduciary duties? Uh, And who owes a corporation fiduciary duties?
2: Great question. so, and this is sort of the core of the basic corporations or business associations class, is about fiduciary duties. And the fiduciary duties are legal responsibilities that officers and directors owe to the firm. And what they do is they commit these people to serve the firm first and foremost. So it you know, for example, the duty of loyalty binds these people to put the interest of the um, officers and the directors um, second behind the interests of the firm itself, right? And so part of the legal power of the firm comes from that commitment, the fiduciary duty commitment, which is, is a very high standard um, and, and a u- unique standard. It's unusual, and I think it's a piece that distinguishes corporate governance from other forms of governance because it's a little bit softer than other kinds of governance. It res- It relies on the responsibility of the people with this legal power to behave appropriately vis-a-vis the firm, right? But those fiduciary duties are very elevated and that's why, um, and, and they're at the core of the connection between individuals and the firm. And so I think that's why we felt that it was so imperative that we think about that as a good place for inclusion to reside as a duty because the the firm must avoid groupthink to succeed in its leadership, right? And that's the best way to achieve it is to have this duty. Um, Yeah.
0: And now what's interesting about y'all's proposal um, and why, you know, I'm sure people listening who are not corporate law professors are like, makes total sense to me. Why is this a revolutionary proposal uh, to impose a fiduciary duty to diversify? Um, One, it's twofold. One, you're imposing a fiduciary duty to diversify and you're wanting something measurable and real, which is new, but you're putting it on institutional investors, right? You're putting this duty, this fiduciary duty on the institutional investor into institutional investors. Um, and so, you know, I'd love for y'all to talk about, like explain the proposal um, and explain why the duty combined with the institutional investors and, you know, explain why it, it's even controversial. You know, everything we've said so far makes this kind of self-evident that the people who own the most stock in America should have a duty to diversify if the other people who have a duty to diversify aren't doing it. Um, so, and I know Anati Anat, should take that one because you also have your forthcoming piece at Vanderbilt that also has a, has a proposal component. Yes. So in
1: um, let me just say a few words about the Vanderbilt piece and then I'll go back to this one if that's okay. So in, in the Vanderbilt piece, we're actually responding to a new paper that's building on our work and that is by... Um, the former Justice Strine and Professor Brummer, and what they're saying in their piece is that there's duty and there's diversity, and they're saying that companies can, they can, they don't have, it's not rather, they don't have to, but they can if they choose to take these issues into account. And what we're doing, first of all, we agree with them. I think it's great. By the way, for Delaware, it's a big deal. When we talk about corporate governance, Delaware is the place. That governs, that tells you what is corporate governance. Okay. So the largest public companies are incorporated in Delaware. Okay. And Delaware also, it's very important. They understand what's going on, all these pressures, okay. That are happening today in the market. And they know that happened in Caremark before with regards to, um, uh, uh, corporate fraud and oversight what do we want managers to do? Are we going to let other people tell us what is corporate governance or are we Delaware or is Delaware going to decide what is corporate governance? Right? So they're very much aware that there are these external pressures trying to tell them what is good corporate governance. So they're saying companies can do this and we're saying, we're pushing this a little bit and saying, no, 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 it's not can. We've had can for a long time. Nothing moved. It's a must. It's a duty recognize the fact that we have a duty here okay let's push this a little bit further and i'll tell you why it's so controversial okay because institutional investors they are beneficiaries they are fiduciaries and before they said oh we just invest in an index that's all we do we put the money in an index the index does whatever it does and we don't have any influence on it not really they have a lot they have a lot of influence on corporate governance and and Remember all these numbers I just gave you, their power, right? When they decide to interfere or engage, now they have what they call engagement, which I would like to know, what is this engagement? You have these tiny offices that you call them engagement offices. They're not even enough to really deal with all the companies that you're overseeing, but that's a different issue, right? Different, different topic. Tell me, what are you doing in terms of engagement? When you have such a large and strong institutional player telling you, what do you do with X? You're gonna comply if you're a CEO. You're gonna take that question very, very seriously. Okay. And what's happening? We think that they already think that they have this duty. Why do I say that? They've made since 2020, they've made very bold public statements. They said, We're committed, we're committed to engage with companies, we're gonna pressure companies to increase more diversity, we're gonna encourage companies to be more transparent on their diversity practices. And so What we're saying, wait a minute, you're making these public statements. Let's evaluate. What are you actually doing? Let's take a look at your actions. And don't forget now you also have activist investors that are starting to sue firms, by the way, firms that made these statements and didn't really do anything about it. I can make whatever statement I want, but what about my actions? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if they're afraid that they might be targeted next. Right. Um, and it's not just that. And, and I think all of us, we can evaluate them based on their statements, but not forget about litigation, right? And we're lawyers, so they, I have to bring up litigation, right? We know this. They're, they're, I'm sure there's going to be lawyers trying to, they would love our piece and try to benefit from it. And it's already happening, by the way. Some lawyers have already started filing some lawsuits saying, hey, they have a duty to diversify. They're not suing that. Let's sue them. Um, I think really the important thing is, What is this duty? Is there a duty to diversify and push for equality? And is it located within the firm and the firm's ownership structure? This is where we're saying something that is new. This is where we're really moving the needle on the literature. And if we are saying that that's the case, what about institutional investors, these powerful actors, right? Do they have a duty to focus on corporate culture? And specifically, do they have to push for equality and diversity in the boardroom? And, and that's really where um, you will find even today, even with everything that I'm telling you, people are st- a lot of people in our field, which remember, again, like I told you, we don't have that many, you know, that much representation in the field. You're going to find a lot of controversy. They'll be like, what are you saying two years ago? nobody even, I mean, I'm shocked that they're even willing to accept this notion today. I'm telling you, I spoke to a lot of people and they weren't even willing to accept the idea two years ago. So we proposed it as a question. We're hoping, you know, to get people engaged on this, on this third piece, right? Responding to the other piece, removing the needle a little more, even pushing, pushing. Um, But really, I think there is a fiduciary duty to advance gender equality in firms in which they invest. And if you look outside the United States, you'll find in other countries, they've already recognized that. But, you know, we have to catch up in the US and let's see where, when we're
0: gonna do that. If and when, if and when, you know? Right. What happens? Well, and I will say, um, that is a great transition because I tend to be a cynic. <laughs> um, and, you know, I always wonder, is it possible for this to happen? Um, and, you know, I wonder if institutional investors um, are, are that right path to get it done? Um, because, you know, typically, you know, you, you don't hold the owners of the corporation responsible for things because the whole point is separation of ownership and control. And they're the investors. But, you know, when I teach BA and when I teach M&A and I teach SECREG, you know, every time I teach it in the spring, we're going to talk about the Larry letter is what I call it in class. Right. I'm like, Larry, Larry dropped the Caprock letter to CEOs. And if I am devoting class time in any of a any business law class to a letter from the, you know, the, 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 the director of or the you know the owner of a institutional investor of CapRock, clearly everyone else is devoting time to, right? Which means they are important. And if they are important and they are influential, and they're as influential as you know, the directors and the officers you know, should they not have the fiduciary duties too? So I totally agree with y'all. And so last thing I want to do, predictions, right? Um, Darren, do you think it's possible? Can we get some gender diversity on boards?
2: I think there is uh, uh, a shift happening. Um, I think some of the Me Too effort and some of the BLM efforts are really waking up the corporate world to the imperative of having inclusive governance and how it's essential for legitimacy for these firms. Um, I also think there's a lot of pressure coming from regulators. You know, the California mandates matter. The NASDAQ rule matters. And I think firms are stepping up for a bunch of reasons. So I'm optimistic that things will improve. How fast? remains to be seen.
0: And i not, we're close to ending, but I'll let you, can we change this?
1: I think the revolution is there. I think it's part of us. Look at State Street, right? Last week, they announced that they're going to insist that they're going to, all the companies they invest in, there's going to be at least one woman on the board, and by 2023, three. That's a big change, right? And look at BlackRock today. Larry's been all over the news again because of his letter, because he's pushing for climate change and he's saying it's contributing to profits and society and stakeholder capitalism. When I started writing about stakeholder stakeholder capitalism a few years ago under Lynn Stout, they thought we were crazy. Stakeholders? Who's going to take stakeholders into account? I wish she was alive today to see this letter, you know? That's her legacy. I mean, that's a big deal that people are actually discussing stakeholders. I mean, five, 10 years ago, we were loonies. So maybe, you know, we're uh, starting to make some strides.
0: Well, I'm excited not to be a loony anymore because I've also been like, let's let's do the lensed out thing for years and years and years. So I'm happy that the world is catching up to us. Thank you all so much for being on the show. Um, you know, when y'all asked about being on, I was like, "You're on my like you know star list." So I'm so excited to have you, and I love both of your work, and love both of you as people. So very happy to have you here and have you here today. Thank you all for listening to Get in Common. Um, if you miss any episode, it's always available anywhere po- you can listen to podcasts. Next week, I will have who do I have next week? Oh, I have my colleagues, Carla. Uh, and Chantal, who will talk about the new Jane Crow and kind of kick off my Black History Month series, which is going to focus on Black women's issues. Thank you again. And if you need to find me on social media, I am at Carla C.
2: Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common
0: with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.